This is the Flight Test Podcast, episode 201. Thank you very much for tuning into the Flight Test Podcast this week. Uh, I'm James, your host, and today we are talking to Terry Dunn. Uh, now, Terry um, spent 15 years at NASA, and he now writes about aviation um, on Tested.com. And he also comes up with loads of crazy radio control aeroplane designs and all sorts of projects that are really cool that he writes about all the time. Um, so yeah, today we're going to be talking about NASA, going to be talking about his R schools, um, and also we're going to be talking about his RC designs, uh, one in particular as well, uh, which is the Parallax, which is an asymmetrical design. Now, if you've never heard of this, then you should definitely check out the uh, article I wrote on it in the description of this podcast. Um, it'll be linked to in, in there. Um, and yeah, I actually got to fly this um, Parallax aircraft with uh, Terry at Flight Fest this year at Flight Fest Ohio. And that was amazing. So I'm really looking forward to talking to him about his design process on that project and all of that. And I hope you enjoy listening to it. So without further ado, let's just jump straight into the interview and get going. Terry, thank you very much for being on the podcast. So yeah, going straight into uh, basically on the Flight Test podcast, I'm not sure if you've listened to it before, but we we like to uh, ask how our guests got into RC flying in the first place. So yeah, how, how did you get involved with uh, model aeroplanes and aviation in general? Um, and you know, how long ago was that? How long have you been flying? Well, it was probably inevitable that I would be into modeling just because when I was growing up, my dad and my uncles, and I had lots of aunts and uncles, there was always some sort of modeling going on, whether it was plastic models or slot cars or control line airplanes. The funny thing is nobody that I knew was really into RC airplanes at the time, but but we did a lot of control line flying with uh, 049 powered stuff and then even 35 powered stuff. And I got into it to the point where eventually RC was the next logical progression of that. So right. I would think even as early as probably sixth grade is when I really started dabbling with RC stuff. But I didn't really uh, dive into RC headfirst until I graduated college. Right. So I took a little break there during high school and I started racing off-road cars. I did that for a while. And... Uh, pretty much got out of airplanes altogether. But then once I got out of college and uh, moved out to Houston, I, there was a bunch of RC guys out there, and I hooked up with them, and, and really, since then, I've been uh, on a roll. Mm, cool. Yeah, so that, that's, uh, that's really interesting. And you said that you were, uh, you're doing off-road cars. Does, does that mean little cars, or do you mean full-size big cars? Oh, no, no, one-tenth scale RC. Ah, right. Okay. I thought I was going to discover something I didn't know about you there with the, uh, <laughs> you had some sort of race, like professional racing career as well as working at NASA and stuff. But... Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> and I was a <laughs> mediocre RC racer at best. <laughs> I'm sure you've been very modest, but no, that's, that's, uh, that's really cool. Um, so yeah, I, I've heard that a lot of people get into sort of control line airplanes and stuff like that. So, uh, 
yeah but then you say you, you got into the the rc stuff so what what sort of uh what was your first um rc airplane then um that's almost a trick question because the first kit that i had was a goldberg junior falcon which is your typical uh, balsa plywood you know, built up plane and it was meant for an 049 a cox 049 and two channels rudder and elevator and are you familiar with the 049 engines uh no not really actually i'm more sort of electric only but yeah no i uh, do do explain well they're kind of iconic over here in the u.s they've been around forever but they're really simple reed valve engines and most of them don't have a controllable throttle you just set the needle valve and the engine runs until it's out of gas which usually oh, okay, yeah. it's about two minutes um so this was a, a two-channel airplane you you start the 049 on the front and then you fly rudder elevator until it runs out of gas and then hopefully you land it on the same general zip code that you started with but that one doesn't really count as my first airplane because although i built it it, we never flew it and i think i was in sixth grade at the time and our family moved to another city and i don't know what all the elements were that that made it not happen but basically that airplane sat on the shelf and then a year or two later once we were settled in the new city i got a great plains pt-20 which is the same idea but a little bit larger it was a three-channel airplane, so it had rudder and elevator, no ailerons, but it did have a 20-size nitro engine with throttle. Significant addition to the aircraft then, having a throttle. Oh, yeah, sure. <laughs> and uh, Now, that one, again, I built, and we actually flew a few times. And, and it's funny, when I graduated high school and college and then moved away, for some reason, I grabbed that plane and brought it with me. And it had been flying up until very recently when this is probably my fifth or sixth move to a different house since then. Um, I had moved it to all those places. And then finally, I'm like, oh, I'm just being nostalgic about this thing. It's a, a 30-year-old airplane that uh, kind of outdated and not useful anymore. And I said, I can't sacrifice the room in this moving truck. It's got to go. And so I, I destroyed it. <laughs> it gave it kind of a Viking funeral. <laughs> and, and all the honor it deserved yeah did you, did you set light to it or something like that i should have but no it, oh, was, right. <laughs> it wasn't quite that dramatic okay you didn't send it off in a long boat then <laughs> fitz and lee gave me a, a, an appropriately hard time about destroying that perfectly good airplane oh. but that those are the things we do yeah no that i completely understand that struggle with space airplanes are just awkward shape sometimes and you, yeah to to sometimes have new planes sometimes the old ones have to go but um yeah that that's a particularly sad story <laughs> with that one but um but yeah so do you have any sort of memorable learning uh experiences with your your models like you know big crash stories or you know hard things you had to overcome or anything like that um i don't nothing really pops up like that i know that most of the learning that I did, I kind of did on my own just because I felt like I knew what I was supposed to do. And so I am like, okay, it's just a matter of going and doing it. Right. And so, so then I go out flying with a couple of buddies and we're just figuring things out. Oh, I guess maybe one story that, that comes to mind is um, we were flying gliders and we had rigged up this thing to tow the gliders up by 
by hand. Basically, one of us would get on the end of the line with a pulley, and one end of the line is stick to the ground. You put the pulley in. The opposite end of the line is to the glider. So when you run with the pulley, you get double the velocity at the airplane. If that makes sense. <laughs> okay, yeah. yeah. So we were doing this, and it was working great. And then it was my turn to fly, so I go and I, I hook everything up. Oh, pardon me. It was my turn to tow. And I went and hooked everything up and got it ready for my buddy. And then I start launching it. And then we soon realized that I had forgotten to turn on the receiver on the airplane. Oh, no. So, so we had launched the slider <laughs> completely free flight. And, and it was a great launch, too. Yeah. Uh, but the amazing thing was that uh, it went up, it circled, and it landed not quite as good as most of our controlled landings, but not far from it. Wow. And, uh, yeah, no damage was done, and yeah. other than my, my pride a little bit. <laughs> but it was yeah. a healthy reminder to, you know, to pre-flight your airplanes. And yes. I'm, I'm pretty stringent about that stuff now. Even if I've flown an airplane 100 times, I've, I'm saying, okay, right on the stick is right on the ailerons, up is up. <laughs> and so not that I'll never make those mistakes again, but I think that lesson really stuck for a long time. Oh yeah, that's that's a really good story. I think that's pro yeah, it's probably the best uh, outcome that you could have uh, hoped for there, doing an almost perfect landing. Indeed, yeah. and I think a lot of people set up the airplanes, the hand launch airplanes, if they have switches, so that on is forward, so that if your hand slips while you're throwing it and brushes the switch, it's going to brush it forward and keep it on. Because right. I've heard stories of the opposite where they accidentally turn it off as they're throwing the airplane. Oh, but but yeah. I never experienced that. That's a bit of a design flaw. <laughs> yeah. And then, of course, there are the stories of the people who throw the transmitter instead of the airplane. But <laughs> Yeah, I've not quite done that yet. Once I knocked a plane, uh, what was it? I had a, um, a flight test versa wing, and I, I sort of held it behind my head to throw it really hard. And I caught the wing around my own head, and then it sort of spiraled into the ground whilst I was throwing it really hard forward. Uh, I felt I felt so stupid, but thankfully there was no one else around me, so got away with that. But now I've just announced it on the Flight Test Podcast, so everyone knows, but anyway. Well, I went to school for engineering, and actually even that wasn't my plan. I went to a, a school called Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University, which I don't know if that's uh, popular over on your side of the pond, but over here it's a, a fairly well-known school for people who are into airplanes. And my original plan was to go there to uh, basically learn to be a pilot. But being the lazy high schooler that I was, my application was a little bit late, so they called me and said, All right, you're in, but our pilot program is already full for this year, so you're going to have to pick something different, and then the next semester you can switch over into the, the piloting degree. And I'm like, yeah, okay, sure. And not knowing what I wanted to, to switch to at the time, a few of my high school friends were also going there, and they're like, yeah, we're doing engineering physics, you should, you should do that with us. 
And that sounded as good as anything else to me at the time. So I uh, basically fell backwards into engineering physics, which <laughs> in generic terms is uh, like spacecraft design. Um, so a mix of aeronautical engineering and aerospace engineering and some you know, broader manufacturing type stuff. Um, so I, I went in planning to do that for a semester or two and then ended up really liking it and just stuck with it and kind of gave up the, the flying thing and stuck with engineering. And so when I graduated there in 1997, and it's not a very, at least my degree wasn't very big. There were maybe 15 of us that would have been graduating at the same time. And they were all getting jobs with NASA or NASA contractors in Houston at the time. And I'm like, Ugh, I don't want to just follow the herd. And so I was looking around at all sorts of different places for different jobs and couldn't find anything. So finally, I caved in and submitted some applications to Houston area places. And within like a day, I had a few interviews. And it's funny, the one place called and I had a phone interview that lasted about 15 minutes. And the guy said, all right, you sound good. I'll hire you. And I'm like, that's it? Like, that, that's the, the whole deal? And the next thing I knew, they uh, sent a moving truck to my house, and I had a plane ticket, and I lived in Houston. That's and amazing. I, I know. It, it's, it felt like I had tougher interviews for the different places that I worked at in high school and college. But, but uh, yeah. So um, maybe I'm just really good at phone interviews. I don't know. <laughs> maybe well i don't know but as easy as it day. is to get into nasa yeah, you get yeah, right. a good day. yeah. Oh, um, or maybe amazing. they were desperate for people i don't know but i, I don't want to question <laughs> it too much no yeah well, so initially you... go ahead no no sorry you go ahead it's fine uh, when i initially got out there um i was in a department that did all sorts of different computer-based things in the mission control center mostly and so what I ended up doing was being a software developer and integrator. So if you can picture the mission control center, um, mm -hmm. you know, the room where all the flight controllers sit and the big screens, things like that. Yeah. So it, it's evolved quite a lot over the years. But at the time when I started there, a lot of the mission processing was done on an IBM mainframe computer with data stored on reel-to-reel -reel tapes. Some stuff was even like punch card programming. It was still really? very much, yeah, wow. uh, it was um, quite anachronistic. And the reason behind a lot of that is, you know, we were in the middle of the space shuttle program then, and NASA's philosophy is when it comes to manned space flight, they really like to stick with what they have experience with and what they know works. With the, the unmanned stuff, they'll tend to be a little bit more cutting edge. But if, if there's a, a beating heart on board, they're, they're going to be much more conservative. Um, so, you know, we were working with this really old hardware, which you know, I thought was great. Um, <laughs> I didn't know anything about it. Of course, I didn't know anything about the newer stuff either. But a lot of the projects going on then were transitioning all these applications that the flight controllers use off this mainframe and onto a Unix-based server and other local applications. So there was always just a ton of work to do, and I got to basically emulate all these different flight control positions to learn their stuff so I could test the software. And, and I didn't know it at the time, but that particular job was great for me 
just because I tend to be a, a jack of all trades. If I had gone into, say, being a flight controller, uh, those guys are super smart, but they specialize in a very narrow sliver of of their application. Where for me, I'm learning kind of a, a knee-deep level at, at, for a whole bunch of applications, and that I think just fit my personality a lot better. Yeah. And a, another great thing about what I was doing and when I was doing it is that there seemed to be kind of a, a big age gap. There was a, a gaggle of people about my age who were fresh out of college, and then there was maybe a 20-year gap, and then there were a whole bunch of people who had come up in the Apollo era. Um, right. And so those guys had been around long enough that they were more than happy to hand us the reins and let us eager beavers go off and do this stuff. So we had these tremendous opportunities to go and and work with this stuff and just dive into anything we could think of and and got the blessings from all these people who just really wanted to come in and start their day by having a cup of coffee and reading the paper. (laughs) (laughs) They'd gone to the moon. They had nothing left to prove. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. um, We'll let the next generation handle Mars, that kind of attitude. (laughs) uh, Yeah, pretty much. So anyway, it was just a great atmosphere and I got to do so many cool things. And I guess the short part of that story is that after seven years, it looked like, um, I was about to move into some sort of middle management role. I would have been getting out of the trenches and doing kind of a pencil pushing job, and I wasn't ready for that. So I started looking for other opportunities within my company, which at the time was called United Space Alliance, which was the prime contractor for most processing of the space shuttle. So it was a pretty big company, and so there were a lot of different things going on. And the position that I found was as a hardware engineer working on the tools that astronauts use when they spacewalk. And just like the previous job before, I knew nothing about it, absolutely zero. But the whatever the three-sentence description was on the internal job postings, I'm like, okay, that sounds cool. I'll, I'll try that. And, and I got it. And again, just falling backwards into this stuff, so yeah. fortunately, it was a perfect fit for me. It was working hands-on with this really cool, unique hardware, and a lot of this stuff was very similar to my experience with RC cars. It was funny, the first couple of days I was there, the technicians and engineers that I was working with were just amazed that I could look at a screw and tell you whether it was a, a 440 or a 632 you know, just by <laughs> right. glancing at it. Yeah. Like, how do you know that stuff? That's I'm brilliant. Like, oh, that's, yeah, that, that's fantastic. That. You can go from uh, like the radio radio control hobby and and you acquire those skills and then people in, in an organization like that can can just value that so highly. It's amazing, yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I tell people all the time that my experience doing RC stuff as a kid made me a much better engineer. Like almost daily I was doing something working on hardware that I had done previously working on an airplane or an RC car or something like that. Very rarely was the opposite true. You know, Almost never did I come home with some new skill that I'd learned you know, working on space hardware and apply it to my hobbies. So if anyone ever questions the value of RC for kids, I mean, I think my experience right there is enough yeah. to to go out and justify the cost of a decent RC car. 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah, so. you heard it here, folks. This is <laughs> it's how you get jobs at NASA. Keep playing with those RC toys. Yeah, yeah that's right. fantastic. That's brilliant. Yeah. So the main uh, the main area that you're working on then that was all surrounded around this sort of uh, the space shuttle program. Is that right? Because that was going on at the time, or is it more um, sort of general stuff as well? Well, no, almost everything would have been space shuttle. And at the time that I started there, we were just getting going with the space station. I think I'd been there a year when the first module of the space station went up. So that was a, a building thing the whole time I was there. Um, so, yeah, I, I think my time would have been split between the two. Or, you know, the things I was doing would have applied to both equally. Yeah, that's really cool. And so the, the, the sort of, you know, day-to-day what you were doing um, on the, you know, that second part of your career that you were just describing, that was, did you say that was to do with the tools that the astronauts were using on the, the spacewalk or? Right. Initially was... it was the tools, the spacewalking tools. And then the same group that does that also works on the spacesuits. So I eventually was doing both. So working on spacesuits and space tools. And that's kind of divided into two areas. There's the side with the hardware that actually goes into space, and then there's a side with the hardware that the astronauts use to train with. And I started out on the training side, which, again, just by pure luck was, for me, the better side. Uh, it was much more active, and it, there was so much going on there and so many opportunities to do things. And our lab was housed at the Neutral Buoyancy Lab, which is... I'm sure everybody's seen pictures of it. It's this gigantic pool out at Ellington Field uh, near the Johnson Space Center. What, I forget the number, 6.2 million gallons, like 100 and something feet long by, or 100 feet wide by 200 feet long by 40 feet deep. And basically there's a full-scale mock-up of the space station in there. And that's where the astronauts go and train for spacewalks and simulating zero gravity in the pool. That's amazing. Yeah. 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 So every day. And when I first started over there, it was just all the time. We were really at the peak of the spacewalks that they were doing to put the space station together. So there would be two different training events going on at the same time with four astronauts in the water and a whole slew of divers. And we're processing, I don't know, 30 something thousand tools per year for these guys to use. It, it was just really a very dynamic time and a great time to be there. Mm, that's amazing so, yeah never a so, no no i imagine yeah it's a very interesting place to work yeah so did you ever uh, meet any astronauts in those sort of situations or oh uh, yeah sure training around yeah yeah part of what my group did is we did direct support of those events so for instance if you're joe astronaut and you're doing a training event in the pool today there's going to be you and you're going to have your buddy there because they always train two at a time just like they spacewalk two at a time yeah. So for you, there's going to be, you're going to have a trainer who has the specific things they want you to learn that day. And that trainer is going to send me a list of all the tools you need to do that. So my lab the day before would pull all those tools, make sure they're in good working order. And the next day when your event starts, we're going to be there. So I'll be there as your tool engineer and I'm providing one-on-one -on -one support to you. So if you have questions about that stuff or if you have a problem with something, or if something breaks in the water, um, I'm right there and I'm interfacing with you to sort it out. And the same thing on the space suit side, 
Um, you're going to have a spacesuit that's fitted to you that's going to get built out for you, and those technicians are going to deliver it, and there's going to be an engineer to, to help deal with any problems along the way. So there was a lot of one-on-one, excuse me, one-on-one working with astronauts uh, in that right. role. Yeah, amazing. That's fantastic. Yeah. That sounds like a very interesting, you know, day to day working life then just going in and, you know, working with astronauts, you know, face to face. It's amazing. Yeah. And I never felt disconnected when I was doing the computer work in the Michigan Control Center. But once I moved to this other side where there was almost a direct connection between what you're doing and then what happens in the mission. And it made it really easy to see that you were making uh, an impact to things going on. Yeah, that's so, brilliant. Yeah. yeah, fantastic. I even had my name mentioned in space once. Oh, really? Wow. <laughs> yeah, that's, I, that's I think that's my claim to fame. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Oh, <laughs> man, that's fantastic. Yeah, so um, so going on from that and then to your life as a, as a freelance writer um, after, after NASA... Um, how did you get involved with uh, with Tested, who you now write for um, quite regularly? You know, this is going to be a recurring theme here. I <laughs> fell backwards. <laughs> of course. Um, so, and the, see, I resigned from NASA in, oh gosh, it's been so long now, I think 2013. And at that time, part of my role was to give tours of that facility for uh, VIPs who came through. And I would end up doing that two or three times a week. And so a few months before I left, I recall that there was a, a buzz going around, that there was a tour coming in, and I think they said they were from the Food Network. I'm like, all right, whatever. It's another tour for me. And it turns out it was Norm and Will and Joey who were all three the face of Tested at that time. Well, I should say Norm and Will were the face and Joey was behind the camera. But I'll be honest, I, I wasn't familiar with Tested at all. Of course, I knew who Adam Savage was from Mythbusters, but he wasn't really that involved with it at the time. He was just kind of uh, in the background. Um, so in the, the course of doing that tour with them that day, I got to know them, kind of got to more know about the site, and um, you know, found it interesting. And so I stayed in touch. And then fast forward a few months later, um, I had resigned and we had moved north to Lubbock, Texas, so my wife could go back to school. And uh, I decided that this freelance writing that I had been doing on the side for four or five years at that point, I'm like, all right, I'm going to go full time with that. And so I'm like, huh, let's see if these guys want me to write some stuff for them. So I reached out to Norm about that and did a, a few NASA related articles for them. And then here's the funny thing. This is when multi-rotors were first getting really popular and Tested had um, reviewed one of the early Phantoms. And in their video of that, they're based in San Francisco, but in their video, you can see where they had collected footage, flying over downtown San Francisco, doing all these things that were generally accepted as you know, bad form for multi-rotors, even back then. Right, yeah, yeah. So I, I sent a, an email to Norm. I'm like, all right, the video is great, but kind of here's the things you, you really need to fix and you shouldn't be doing this and that. And he said, okay, that's great information to have. Why don't you write an article about it? 
telling us what we did wrong and kind of give the, the etiquette for people who aren't aware of that. So I think that was where I started the RC stuff with them. So for a long time, I was doing NASA slash aviation bits and also RC. And now it's morphed into where I do mostly RC stuff for them. But going on five years now, I've been a, a regular contributor to those guys. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, well, yeah. I've been really enjoying those articles, especially the ones on your RC projects and all of that. Well, along along with the NASA ones, I find them all very uh, interesting. And uh, yeah, um, what what we'll do is we'll put the links of uh, of some of these articles down in the description of this podcast for for you the uh, the listener to uh, to um, go and read after this podcast. So, all right, Terry. So your crazy remote control uh, radio control airplane designs and experiments is something that really caught my eye um, on tested and especially the uh, the parallax the asymmetrical design um, that I actually wrote about on flight test uh, recently so yeah how, how was that uh, that conceived how did you come up with that idea and uh, and what sort of design challenges did you have uh, making that thing become a reality well I want to say the genesis of the parallax was more an effort to satisfy my own curiosity. Um, in the article that I write about it, I mentioned that I'd always been intrigued by the Blomenvoss BV-141, which was the German asymmetric plane back in World War II. And then there's also the Rutan Boomerang, which is a twin-engine asymmetric plane. And you look at them, and at least for me, I can appreciate their, their beauty and the form and the unusual aspect of them, but it was just killing me that I didn't understand how they worked. So um, somewhere around that same time, I had written an article about the Aero Commander, which uh, a lot of you would know that airplane is the, the twin-engine plane that Bob Hoover would fly in air shows. Mm -hmm. yep. But early in development of that design, the guys who created it did kind of a promotional stunt when it had to go to some FAA center near Washington, D.C., they flew it from Wichita, Kansas to D.C. on one engine. And <laughs> not just one engine, they took the propeller off of one of the <laughs> engines on the ground, put it in the cabin, took off, flew to D.C. on one engine and landed with the with the one propeller <laughs> just to show the, the single engine safety. And I'm like, wow, you talk about asymmetric planes and... You know, there's a great example there. It doesn't look asymmetric, but wow. Yeah, yeah. And the more I thought about it, the more I'm like, well, really, if you think about it, any propeller plane or almost any propeller plane is asymmetric because they're going to have right thrust or down thrust or some sort of offset. And some airplanes have one wing longer than the other. Um, and it occurred to me that pure symmetry was more often the exception than the rule. So I sat down with this three-view drawing of the BV-141 and kind of figured out how things were distributed and felt like I got a decent grasp on why they did what they did and how it might work. So based on that, I said, no, actually, oh, I forgot. I did a whole experiment with this off-the-shelf plane called the uh, Hobby Zone Red Hawk, which is a little beginner plane, but you could buy the different components, a fuselage and a wing and the tail components you could buy all that separately so what i did is i had a handful of those parts and i put together an asymmetric plane 
based on that. So basically, I emulated the BV-141 in a way that you know, fit what I thought was my understanding of it, and I tried it, and it worked. So I'm like, okay, great. I think I have the concept here. So now that I think I know how it works, how can I take it to its furthest logical extreme to apply all these concepts into a plane that looks completely unairworthy, but flies kind of normal? <laughs> and yeah. And I still have that original sketch around here somewhere, but the parallax was the result of that. And my original concept was a canard, and my prototype was a canard. And I did get it flying, but I never really got it flying well enough that I thought it was something I could release to the public as a, a stable design. So the second prototype had did away with the canard and had a conventional tail and flew much better, I think. And it wasn't a, a quick or easy development process, but you know, making a few tweaks here and there, eventually I got it flying and understood why things were working the way they did. At least I like to think that. <laughs> yeah. And and the the true test. So I, I made my own and I made some for friends and said, here, just try this. I'm not going to tell you anything about it. Just here, take this airplane and fly it and tell me what's funny about it because I'm too involved in it to, to see the flaws. And so I did that and got some positive feedback from it and really nothing to change. So my next step was to draw up some plans, write an article, and it was published in Model Aviation Magazine. And it, strangely enough, I think everybody's uh, – freaked out by this but it's when i last checked it was their number three top selling set of plans really? at least since <laughs> they're since they started offering the plans <clears throat> excuse me online so i'm like wow why, why is everybody so interested in this awkward looking airplane <laughs> but and i think maybe that's the answer that it's just it's different yeah which yeah. was the pretty much the point to begin with um so anyway, um, the real litmus test for me was after those plans were released and the first person to email me and say, I've built one on my own based on your plans. And then my, I'm all nervous reading this email, waiting for the, you stupid blankety blank, how could you? But no, he said, I built it. It flies great. I'm like, wow, that's a relief. That's a great feeling. <laughs> so, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, so you never really know how somebody else is going to interpret your plans. And there's a lot of wiggle room there. And whether it's craftsmanship or misreading or a typo on your part, there's always a lot of fudge factor there. Um, so I was so happy to, to see that at least the first one had worked out well. And I've received uh, feedback from a dozen or more people since then. And everybody's been happy with it. I haven't received any hate mail about that yet. <laughs> <laughs> and it's been three or four years so yeah that's brilliant so how how yeah. does that um could you describe to the listeners for those who don't know or we will put a, a, a picture of it down or a few pictures of the parallax um down in the description or in the article that goes along with this podcast but for the listeners could you describe sort of uh the configuration and, and how different you know the pod and the motor and that sort of thing are, are laid out on your on the final parallax design um, I can try. It's difficult because I don't think it resembles much of any other airplane. Um, if if people are familiar with the BV-141, and, and that's what most people relate it to, usually when I take it to Falliance, they're like, hey, that's a German plane, right? And I'm like, well, kind of. Um, so if you can picture the BV-141 with a cranked wing, so 
swept, but not equal in length on both sides. That's probably going to get you the closest visual representation of what the parallax is. Right, okay. Cool. So would you say that that's your, your sort of most wacky design then, or have you had any others which are sort of a bit uh, out there and experimental and maybe don't look like they should fly? Oh my gosh, that's... No, that's kind of my thing. To, <laughs> okay. to make unusual airplanes. I like to go to the field and make people scratch their head. <laughs> I tend to build conversation starters. Um, with the asymmetry is kind of fun because once I felt like I had it figured out, I wanted to explore some different ideas with it. So I did another one that's a twin, and oh, I meant to take it to Flight Fest, and I have no idea how I forgot it. But um, it's a twin push pull, and I'd have to put a picture up to show you. But that's one where you look at it and you're like, oh, I can see how that works. I've never seen a real airplane like it, but just looking at this, I, I understand how it works. Right, yeah. Slightly less yeah. Uh, confusing than the, than the other one. Yeah. Right, so unconventional, but not radical. Right, yeah, yeah. And um, another unusual one, oh gosh, there's just so many. <laughs> a, a more recent one, are you familiar over there with the movie Airplane? Uh, yes, yeah. A, a comedy from, I guess, the early 80s? Yeah, yeah. On, it's on Netflix, yeah. On, okay, on the box art of, of that movie, if you get VHS or DVD or, or whatever it is, on the box art is an airplane, a 707 kind of thing that's tied in a knot. Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, Don't tell me you made one so, like that. Of course I did. <laughs> of course. <yeah. laughs> so wacky for a while, yeah. <laughs> uh, right. So there used to be this uh, a chuck glider available over here that looked like a Boeing 757. And it was very popular. I don't know why it went away because it was a, a great flying chuck glider and it made super RC conversions. Mm. Um, but I had one of those that I had stashed away for a, a rainy day. And I finally decided to do this. And I was able to find a pool noodle and I'm going to have to keep asking you what the nomenclature is over there, but does pool noodle make oh, sense? Oh, yeah, that is makes, that a thing that makes to sense. You? Yeah, yeah. Uh, okay. So a pool noodle, this stretchy hunk of foam that I could tie into a knot, and I found one with the same diameter of the fuselage on that, that glider. All right. And so I integrated the two and made it look kind of – I painted it to look like the – the color scheme on the box art and it flew. That was another one where there was a lot of uh, trial and error to get it going mm -hmm. because what I had to do that knot on the front was a huge uh, drag inducer and also a lot of side area. So I had to make the vertical stabilizer on this thing just enormous. <laughs> yeah. um, but I think the, the knot on the front kind of drew attention away from the oversized stabilizer. Yeah, it wasn't the weirdest um, thing it, on that plane. <laughs> uh, uh, right, right. So it ended up flying really well. And I took it to EFEST uh, in 2016, which is an indoor flying event. Or It's not around anymore, but yeah, they uh, fly in the field house at the University of uh, Illinois. And I was able to fly it around in there, and that was pretty fun. But uh, that was an event where I had to – only RC event I've ever been to where I flew commercially to get there. And I had stuffed all my gear into this crate and put it on the airplane, and it was kind of a pain. And one guy at the event had really taken a shine to that airplane. 
and I was going to have to tear it apart to get it back into the crate. So I'm like, here, buddy, I, I can tell you like this airplane. If you promise that you'll fly it and show it off, you can have it. You can just take it with you. <laughs> oh, that's nice. So, uh, so yeah, I left it with him and I like to think that he's been flying it around, but I don't know what's happened to it. Since then. So <laughs> oh, that's cool. Yeah, that's nice. So if you see an airplane with a knot in it, that, that could be the one. Yeah, you'll know where it came from. <laughs> exactly. That's great. No, that's really cool. Yeah. So yeah, you as you mentioned, you were at Flight Fest this year. That's the first time that I actually met you in, in person. Um, we had a right. great time flying that Parallax. I'm sorry again that I actually crashed it. Um, so for the for the uh, <sighs> for the, <laughs> the listeners, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> for the <laughs> listeners, um, Terry was very kind in giving me the controls for that airplane. I was very excited to fly it. And yeah, as as you were saying, Terry, it, it flies just like a normal normal plane for for most of the time, uh, until you sort of have a few issues with the torque. And it's not a massive thing, but when you're coming into land, I think I must have punched the throttle a little bit, and it sort of stalled over and uh, hit the ground. Yeah, but... that that's one area where it deviates from a more traditional airplane a little bit. When you're at low speed and you give it a lot of throttle, that offset motor is going to have a, a pretty big yaw effect yeah and and i it seemed like that's what happened with you but i'm not really sure no it might have just been lack of so, skill to be fair but i'm not really sure <laughs> but it was good fun anyway it was good fun i'm sorry that i kind of yeah. wrote it off but uh no you just reopened old wounds that was <laughs> that was my second prototype and the first one with the conventional tail all right. so it it has been through all sorts of torture it's been flown into the side of a, a car not my proudest moment. <laughs> was that your car or was that someone else's? Uh, no. Oh, my gosh. That, here's here's where it gets ironic. I flew into the side of my insurance agent's car. <laughs> well, I'm sure they'd know what to do. So. Uh, oh, yeah, they knew. All right. And uh, so my only ever insurance claim, RC related. So, uh, nice. yeah. Oh, how we laughed. Okay. So that, that plane has caused a little bit of trouble before I got my hands on it then. It had. It was probably a little bit cursed and so <laughs> Oh, dear. Right, okay. Should have given me <laughs> but, a different one. <laughs> no, no, no. You had to experience that yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. That's and, cool. Uh, and, but you'll be happy to know that I decided to patch it up. It only had minor cracks after uh, Flight Fest. And I was going to a different event the next weekend. So I patched it up and took it out to this other event, and I had a midair with it. Oh, no. So, <laughs> I talk about a curse. And, uh, yeah, and so that that wrote off any chance of this thing ever coming back to life. So uh. I've still got it sitting here uh, on the workbench. Uh, I need to pull the parts out. And the only real question is, do I build another parallax just so I still have one in the fleet, or do I just kind of let it die a natural death? Hmm. Yeah, I'm not so sure. I, I'm still on the fence. Yeah, I've got a couple other ones around, but they were variations on the theme, where I built one that has just a flat plate airfoil with one aileron, and I've, oh, I've got a mini one that flies really well. So I guess I'll always have that. Um, but yeah, there's a few different variations, but I don't think I have any that are pretty true to the original plans. So. Yeah, I I may get back to it one day. They're pretty simple to build, so if I get bored one day, I'll I'll slap one together. Yeah, well that's good to know because I I definitely want to build one, so I probably will be in the near future. <laughs> but uh, right. yeah, that's very cool. So where can people find the plans for that? Um, did you say in the the model aviation magazine? 
Yeah, if you search Model Aviation's website, which is, I think, just modelaviation.com, if you search Parallax, uh, it should take you right to the article, the online version of the article, which is a condensed version. And they're not free plans. They sell them through the site. I think they're like 12 or 15 bucks. Yeah, I'm not sure. Okay, that's cool. All right, yeah. awesome. Well, we'll put a link in the description for that or in the uh, article for this podcast. And yeah, okay. people can find them there. Um, but yeah, so h- how was your Flight Fest experience? It was the first one that you went to, right? Yes, my first ever. And I, I'm so glad I made the trip. It's about a, a four-hour drive for me. I live in Buffalo, New York. And it, it's really worth it. I was hemming and hawing about whether I should go because I knew I'd only go for one day. And everybody from this area that goes says, no, really, you have to camp there to get the full experience. You're, you're just you're dabbling if you only go one day. Um, but I figured it's better to experience this now, and even if uh, it's partial. So I got up early and went, and I got there, I think, by 9 in the morning, where things were just kind of getting going. And I stayed until probably 8 o'clock that night, and things were still going strong then. But... I wanted to get back at a reasonable hour here. Um, but it was in those hours from nine to eight, whatever it actually was, was just jam packed. Like I'd, I might've sat down for a couple minutes to eat lunch or, or something, but literally running from one cool thing to the next, trying to soak it all in and never really capturing the full breadth of it no that's that's my experience completely i think that word that you use there jam-packed or that phrase that's yeah that's that's exactly how i would uh uh, describe a flight fest it's just so full of stuff i felt like i I needed to sort of relive the whole experience again and and do different things just to sort of experience all of it but it's just almost too much to do it's amazing yeah so Uh, yeah yeah that's brilliant well i'm really and it's sorry go on it's such a different atmosphere than the other RC events that I'm used to. Um, It's hard to describe. I think it it certainly captures the aura of flight test and what they're trying to promote with the youth involvement and family involvement and the the do-it-yourself kind of approach to all this. You don't really see that anywhere else at RC events. Certainly you'll see people who build their own stuff and you'll see some wives and kids there. But it's really kind of a boys' club and a lot of ours. Nothing wrong with any of that, but it was just interesting to see that there is a very vibrant other side to the hobby. So it was nice to experience that. Yeah, well, it's really great to hear. And we try our best, we try our best, and that's exactly what we're trying to do. So that's really, really fantastic to hear. So yeah, so you'll be back for the next one then. (laughs) Um, Yes, I think there's still a huge question uh, how long I'll get to stay for the next one. Um, I'm hoping I can do at least one overnight. But, you know, um, I'm the dad of three kids, and there's just never, <laughs> there are never any certainties when it comes to this guy. So, <laughs> of course, yeah, I know. Completely understand. When the time comes. Yeah. yeah. Mm, that's cool. Well, if if you do end up coming to the next one and, and uh, stay for a bit longer, I'll be, I'm looking forward already to hanging out with you and flying some more parallaxes or something like that. That's going to be great. 
right, Terry, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Um, do you want to plug any of your, you know, online content or your, uh, you know, where we can find you or your other stuff on, on the internet? Uh, sure. Um, I would encourage people to go to rcroundtable.com. Uh, that's the website for our podcast. And uh, I think I mentioned this earlier, we do that every other week and we talk about all sorts of different RC stuff. We tend to focus on planes, but the three of us are also into boats and cars and whatever else comes up. So we really never know what you're going to talk about. I should say we really never know what we're going to talk about. (laughs) (laughs) But, uh, you know, James has been a guest on the show before. We try to have interesting people join us and share their views too. So it's something that we do that we think is a lot of fun and uh, we hope that it's fun for people to listen to. Yeah, well, so, it, was, it was very much uh, an enjoyable experience being on, and I think Austin was on there before as well, so you could go back Austin, and listen right, to Right, Austin one. Fury has been on there, and we're hoping yeah. to have him back before Flight Fest Texas. I also have a website that has um, a few links to some of my favorite articles that I've written and ways to reach out to me. So uh, I can send you those links if, yeah, uh, so if you want to I will them. put them all in the in the. Uh, yeah, the, the accompanying article in the description and all of that. So yeah, that's brilliant. Well, thanks very much for being on, Terry, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks for having me. So yes, that was the Flight Test Podcast this week. Thank you very much for listening, as always. Next time, we're going to be checking in with none other than our favourite Swede, David Vindestal. So check out that in a few weeks. In the meantime, remember to have a look at flighttest.com, read the articles, uh, post your own articles, write stuff, contribute, do all that stuff, be an awesome member of the community. And yes, we will catch you in the next podcast.